Everyone says that in a bear market, you should continue to DCA, and everyone generally fails to follow that advice because they get so demoralized that they stop buying. But some people remain, Chris. <laughs> this is like a rich guy's DCA. President Bekele from El Salvador has announced that they're going to buy one Bitcoin every day. Um, probably not indefinitely, but I guess he's buying the dip. I happen to be in El Salvador, and kind of interesting because no El Salvadorian I've spoken with has any interest interest or even particular knowledge of the Bitcoin bill and Bitcoin as legal tender. Their main thing is, yeah, occasionally a foreigner will try to spend Bitcoin and it's kind of a hassle. <laughs> mm, that sort of jives with uh, some of the reports I've read when Bitcoiners travel and come back and they kind of talk about it. I, I get it. Honestly, if you think about it, most citizens of the states are totally unaware of how any of the financial investments or mechanisms of the United States government works. And, you know, until just recently, they probably didn't think much about interest rates at all. They probably didn't think much about strategic oil reserves at all. There's a lot of functioning there that I, I get it. Day-to-day -day people just don't really think about it much. And uh, I remember when phone payments became a thing and I actually am kind of a fan of Apple, Apple's implementation as, as far as traditional payments go because it doesn't reveal as much information to the merchant. And so I was like, okay, I'll try that. And you know, I remember I was that guy for like, it felt like a year where they would look at me like, oh, uh, I don't know. You can try it. You know, I got that for, I sometimes still get that. Uh, just that roll of the eyes, it's a hassle. Uh, it's a, and, and then also at the same time, I think it's, uh, you know, we're looking at somewhere like around 103 million has been spent on Bitcoin purchases. They, they supposedly hodl somewhere around 2,380 Bitcoin, somewhere in that neighborhood. As far as a nation economy goes, it's also probably not so much that's showing up on a lot of people's radar. Right. And I mean, as a balance sheet, that's good because I think that with Bitcoin's volatility and countries are kind of like businesses in that they have a lot of outflows. They have a lot of cash churn. They don't actually make as many long-term investments as we would like. So it makes sense to have a small position. But I just want to clarify, I'm not dunking on Bitcoin adoption in El Salvador, because if you do go to Bitcoin Beach or at the Adopting Bitcoin Conference, you can pay for everything with Lightning. And, you know, it's more convenient than a credit card there because a lot of merchants can't afford to get a credit card processing terminal. They just don't have enough volume to justify the upfront expense. And especially in El Zante, which is the, the town where Bitcoin Beach is or began, there is no banking services. It is a super poor community. And so the fact that they do have several businesses and merchants who can accept Lightning, it means that anyone in the world can do business with them. Now, generally, that means tourists going there. But the thing is, I, you know, I didn't even see the, the ATM machine in that town. So you could go there and just not plan ahead and not have enough cash and you wouldn't be able to buy what you need and those local businesses would lose out on that business. So Bitcoin does fix that in many ways, I believe. Well put. I've also been told by, uh, you know, friends that have done booths at events and they want to sell merch. It can take months to get all of that actually set up and to get everything approved. And if you're kind of one of a, you know, common thing to do, right, is sort of last minute plan. A lot of people do that, especially if you're doing a lot of events. Uh, it can really screw you. And whereas you show up, you can start taking lightning payments immediately. So that's that is super powerful. Well, this should be a fun episode. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday. November 18th, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin dad, and I'm here, as always, with... Oh, me, Chris. Hello, everybody. 
Thanks for joining us. Indeed. So we're going to discuss more of the FTX drama. There's some interesting on-chain data and I think some aspects of Sam Bankman-Fried's fraud and sociopathy are kind of fun to talk about. There's also potentially more contagion. Gemini Earn has gated withdrawals, so we can discuss that. There's some news that Moon is using submarine swaps to process payments, which almost begs the question, are you a lightning wallet if you're doing that? And you know, it's debatable, but it's kind of an interesting detail. We are yet again debating zero conf transactions. I thought, gosh, this is so 2016. But actually, many developers don't really seem to have a problem with zero conf transactions. Peter Todd does, of course. And so we can get into kind of the orthodoxy versus practical view of various risk trade-offs. In economics, Japanese inflation hits a 40-year high. I mean, of course it does. But why is that kind of important in the context of legacy narratives around we can get through this crisis. It might be a red flag. In tokenomics, there is a FTX class action suit against the celebrities who took money to promote it. Hilarious. Corey of Swan Bitcoin has a incredible thread that compiles many of A16Z, Andreessen Horowitz, the venture capital firm's many scams that they've promoted. Maybe we should look into that because in many ways, A16Z has driven a lot of the scammy tokenomics of this bull market. Also, schadenfreude uh, tokenomics news, crypto com apparently doesn't know how to use wallets and actually sent 320,000 ETH to an external address. That's a red flag. Probably don't want to use them as a custodian. And in a complete clown world curveball, Bitcoin Cash might be legal tender in the island of St. Kitts and Nevis in 2023. We didn't think that the next country to adopt Bitcoin would be adopting Bitcoin Cash. So that's a funny turn of events. And if we have time, I'd like to talk a little bit about Jameson Lopp's article on the death of decentralized email. Kind of interesting, and I think you'll have a lot to weigh in there, Chris. In Bitcoin education, we have Darth Coin's Lightning Wallet Guide, which is a good breakdown of trade-offs in Lightning Wallet, and Bitcoin Optech 226 that covers a new covenant type. So we'll review covenants and what this new type is. Then we have some feedback and boosts. And you're on location in El Salvador, which is pretty cool. Oh, right. I guess we should talk about the Adopting Bitcoin conference as well. Yeah, I want to know. And, and I also want to know, have you gone to Bitcoin Beach? Are you going to go if you haven't? I went to Bitcoin Beach yesterday and actually recorded some interviews on site. I didn't talk to anyone from Bitcoin Beach because they were sort of doing television interviews. Mm. It's pretty interesting. It's a very, very poor community. And the fact that Bitcoin Beach has managed to get it on the world map is pretty amazing. You know, Bitcoin Beach is a community project. So Bitcoin is just a tool they're using. I think that if you aren't a Bitcoiner and you look at Bitcoin Beach, you could say, well, hold on, you got a lot of poor people, not a lot of local businesses. And how does Bitcoin fix this? Like give them jobs and give them better housing. And, you know, maybe that would be a better use of resources. And I think that Bitcoin Beach is all about not fostering a culture of dependence, which is kind of a trap that a lot of NGOs fall into, giving people fish instead of teaching them how to fish. And so it's a very efficient use of resources to add banking and financial services to a local community. And then with Bitcoin, if you're plugging into the Bitcoin network, you can attract a lot of interest. And so in many ways, Bitcoin Beach is marketing for the El Zante community. And I think that's fine. At the same time, many altcoins do similar sort of 
of press release type projects to showcase adoption or examples of how their project might be useful. But in the case of Bitcoin Beach, there's a lot of infrastructure that's been built around Bitcoin there. There's Bitcoin ATMs. There's a lot of businesses that take Bitcoin. Street sellers take Bitcoin. And it seems to be very convenient for them because, again, these people can't afford credit card processing terminals. So I think it's a real project. At the same time, Bitcoin is a tool that El Zante is using for economic and social development. It's not like they all got really religious about Bitcoin. It works for them. And if it didn't work for them, they'd use something else. This is the same story with Linux, right? The free software fanatics brought it into existence and rallied around it and created a whole series of tools that enabled it to be a successful platform. And then when adoption actually struck, um, it became an implementation detail. Like nobody walks around with a smartphone today thinking they have a Linux box. They think they have an Android phone and they don't think about going to a Linux server when they go to Amazon.com. They're just shopping. And the fact that it's powered by Linux is a total non-factor. There's there's zero emotional connection there. And that just seems to be the the trend. Uh, you know, the Internet used to be that way. Even there, there was some of us advocating for Internet adoption and there was pushback on that. And now everybody has an Internet connection in their pocket and it's just no big deal. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think that hyper Bitcoinization, you know, it doesn't mean that everyone suddenly is really into Bitcoin. It might mean that the financial plumbing swaps out and national currencies are running on Bitcoin rails or sort of integrated with them in a very useful way. Yeah, I think there is an incentive structure that Bitcoin inherently brings, just like there's an incentive structure that fiat inherently brings to a culture. And one of the more powerful documentaries I saw about the Bitcoin implementation down there was about, I think the guy was a delivery worker who was taking Bitcoin as payment. And he was, you know, about 30 something years old. He had never held more than $20 in his life. He'd never had any, you know, he just at the end of the month, maybe he'd have about 20 bucks. And if he did, he'd buy something. And when he started getting paid in Bitcoin and paying his bills in Bitcoin, um, he started saving. And at the time of the documentary, although it's probably worth less now, he had almost $500 in savings. That's right, because it's very difficult to save in cash. I mean, maybe people have experienced this, but if you just leave a lot of cash in your wallet, I feel like over time you gradually spend it down just because it's there. And so cash saving, you know, maybe you need like two wallets and you put one under your mattress or an envelope at home full of cash. And just those little steps, I think, make saving in cash harder. And obviously it's risky, right? Because if someone, you know, visits your house while you're not home, they might take your cash. So most people use custodians like banks to do saving. And when I say most, I mean 90 plus percent who have access use custodians for saving because of the security. Um, You don't have to worry about someone like physically stealing your cash. And your savings can plug into various types of yield products that protect you from inflation and give you some kind of yield. Now, in communities that don't have any banking access, that's almost like saying they don't have the ability to save. And you can see because if there's a community that doesn't have a bank or any banking access, that's a poor community. Rich communities always have access to financial services. That's almost like what the definition of being rich is in a certain sense. I wonder too if there isn't something psychologically deeper, right? Uh, Not only is a Bitcoin precious where fiat is literally infinite, uh, but it's yours. It is truly yours in a provable way beyond like even you can you have a house, but it's it's not easy to prove it, right? You have to go find the paperwork. You have to do all that process. It takes a little bit of time where Bitcoin you can verify within seconds. Oh, there's some sort of deep ownership sensation there. And I think that also incentivizes humans to want to collect. And I think it changes behavior because the asset itself is pristine. It's a good asset where fiat savings, fiat is is not a pristine asset. It's not good. And I, I don't know if people intellectually recognize it, but I think it still influences their behavior. And when you just zoom out and look 
look at the state of culture, I think you see fiat's influence over 50 years. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I think there might be something even just sort of more psychological to when you switch to a Bitcoin saving standard, you just think about money in a longer time frame. It might just be the incentives of a volatile asset that pumps every four years. You want to be really smart. you planning on selling anything, you sell it on like a four-year cycle, maybe. Yeah. Or you. I think people respond well to incentives. It doesn't have to be something metaphysical like, you know, Bitcoin is, you know, this sort of religious object that changes the way people think. It's just the incentives of it change behavior. What I'm saying, though, is Bitcoin is a living organism. No, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) It's a mycelium. Remember when mycelium was so hot? There was that Star Trek series that was all about interdimensional mushrooms. The spore drive. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Bitcoin's a spore drive. (laughs) Now, there's a lot of FTX news. So, so much is going on that I think that it's less interesting to link to the latest discoveries and allegations. We can mention them. But Glassnode has been doing some on-chain analysis, and they have some cool charts on Twitter that we've linked to. And basically, what you can see is they're tracking Alameda Research, FTX's sister company, prop shop, trading firm that lost all its money. And they, they can see over time that Alameda basically traded on two exchanges, Binance and FTX, and about 90% on Binance. And it's interesting to see this data because in traditional markets, when there's a big blow up, getting the transaction history is actually really complicated and involves auditing and people can fake those ledgers. And so there's this term from the past that Bitcoin is triple entry accounting because you have your standard business double entry accounting, and then you also have a ledger that is the block chain that kind of validates your internal accounting. And what Glassnode can see using the Bitcoin ledger and and actually some other altcoin ledgers too, is that Alameda only ever had about 200 million in liquid funds in their on-chain wallets or the ones that were visible. And they can see that a lot of funds flowed into FTX and Binance. But towards the end, towards the crisis, Glassnode can see that Alameda was drawing down balances on Binance and adding money to FTX. And so I think that this kind of looks like a bailout. Alameda trying to bail out an insolvent FTX after FTX bailed out an insolvent Alameda. And it's just kind of interesting because we're we're seeing a Ponzi scheme trying to sustain itself on chain. And what happens to their Bitcoin reserves in the process? They completely disappear because, you know, Bitcoin is a asset that you can self-custody. And so anybody with Bitcoin on FTX withdrew it. And then Alameda, of course, had to sell it which was that next drop in Bitcoin price when it, I think, went below 16K. So kind of interesting charts just to provide the physical on-chain kind of footprint of this whole scam. I have a couple of thoughts about this that I'd like to run past you. So I'll save the noob question for a second. But this is a lot of volume between Binance and Alameda. And this had to be on their radar. Don't you figure? Binance must have seen this amount of money moving around, seeing the destination where it was going. I have a sense the more time goes on that CZ was pretty on top of all of this as it was going down. Yeah, sure. Because Binance is a really big crypto market and they have all the data on the people who have accounts on their exchange and what they're doing. And so when they tie that to on-chain data, they basically have really good financial intelligence on their clients and potentially competitors. Yeah. 
in a way, Binance killing FTX is sort of free market capitalism is back because CZ used on-chain and proprietary data to kind of suss out the weakness of FTX. And when he pushed on that by dumping FTX token, liquidating it, and sort of embarrassing Caroline from Alameda when she tried to buy it OTC to prevent the market price from dropping, he just destroyed a rival that was making political moves that could have hurt his business. And I'm not making any moral judgments here. That's just how I view what happened. At the same time, I think afterwards, CZ expressed surprise at how hard FTX fell apart. I think that maybe he was expecting FTX to survive, but just in a weaker, lessened state. And maybe he was just trying to punish Sam for trying to do a regulatory end run around Binance and locking them out of the regulatory discussion. We may never know, but yeah, the answer probably lies in there somewhere. Okay, so here's my noob question. I've heard a lot of Bitcoiners going around saying FTX was essentially trading paper Bitcoin and that was suppressing the price. Do you agree with that assessment? And what do they mean exactly? Were they essentially, is that essentially saying FTX was putting Bitcoin on the balance sheet in people's individual accounts, but was never actually going to be able to deliver on it? Probably. I, I think we'd have to look at their accounts and do an audit to figure out how much they did that. But certainly when FTX is insolvent, it means that the customer balances in the FTX customer database were greater than the crypto assets held in FTX's wallets. And of course, some of that's going to be Bitcoin. So they have a mismatch between their liabilities, which is what they owe their customers, which is just a SQL database, and their assets, which is crypto assets in crypto wallets, including Bitcoin. Can that suppress the price? Sure. If FTX was creating paper Bitcoin and selling them to people, instead of going out onto the market and buying Bitcoin to sell to people, they were suppressing the price, in my opinion, because they were creating fake paper Bitcoin instead of going to the market and buying Bitcoin, to drive, which would drive up the price naturally. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. What a mess. You know, there's, like you said, there has been so, so much. I have been trying to capture the highlights in our Bitcoin matrix chat, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash matrix, because there are still times where things are developing on an hourly basis. I think probably the most salacious stuff has been, you know, private DMs that have been shared. And then Sam apparently continuing to just go about his life in the Bahamas, which is also a fascinating aspect. And then also just watching all of the press try to course correct after this event has happened and seeing how all of that has unfolded. This is one of the more interesting crypto, like, you know, crash events, because I really feel like we are truly now in a proper Bitcoin bear market because there's an overwhelming chime from mainstream media that crypto is dead. This was the death of crypto. Crypto has been exposed as a scam and they really struggle to differentiate Bitcoin from the rest of crypto. And they're just kind of bundling all up in one big basket and saying this is officially dead. You know, Jim Cramer on CNBC declared crypto dead. Uh -oh. Lots of reports of this is it. I just before the show started, I read a report saying uh -oh. crypto if, was if dead. If Jim Cramer says it's dead, that's a I know. market. It's a good sign for us, actually. Button, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know. But it's been interesting. You know, I this is what I was waiting for. I'm not saying this is a bottom, but I clearly remember this in other really bad bear markets where there is this, okay, it's dead now. And it just gets, you know, I mean, that, that definitely happened after Mt. Gox. It felt this feels very similar to Mt. Gox in a lot of ways, only much larger, obviously. Yeah. I mean, if you're not questioning yourself and saying, maybe I was wrong about this whole Bitcoin thing, then it's not the bottom of the bear market. I think for me, that'll probably hit in 2023. The most I've had so far was like, huh, maybe I should have figured out how to DCA into gold. Ha 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 ha.
<laughs> you know, I had that thought once. I, I don't think so. Gold has been very stable, but it really hasn't been um, too exciting uh, for those gold holders out there. That's just that I had that thought the other day. I was like, yeah, yeah. Besides, I'm not rich enough to diversify. I kind of feel like this is an opportunity. So I'm not sure it's going to it's going to have to be quite the bear market. I think it would have to be into 2025, really, because the lower the price goes, the more excited I get. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking I'm actually thinking of like, what could I sell? What could I sell to build up a little cash stockpile? So that way, if that price comes down some more, I can just pick up a whole Bitcoin. How great would that be to just buy a whole Bitcoin in this bear market? That'd be incredible. So, I mean, I I actually am just super excited by the potential buying opportunity. So if it, you know, if we get through 2024, we get through the happening, we get into 2025 and we don't see the price going up, then I'm going to be a little nervous. <laughs> You're going to have your opportunity because Gemini Earn gated withdrawals. GBTC is trading at an insane discount. I'm not even sure what it is now, but it was 30% earlier this year. So I have no idea what the discount is now. And they're on Twitter saying that, hey, there's no problem. We're not rehypothecating funds, which from what I know about them, they shouldn't be. But it looks like Digital Currency Group that's behind the Grayscale Bitcoin Investment Trust is in trouble. And we're going to see much more contagion from the FTX blow up. Because remember, Alameda blew up with Luna. FTX blew up as a second order effect of Alameda exploding. Actually, if SBF had not been a total sociopathic scammer and stolen customer funds, he should have let Alameda explode when 3AC and Terra Luna exploded, except they decided to break the law and bail out the hedge fund. They'd probably been breaking the law before then, but that's the course they took. They, they could have probably survived if they hadn't further entangled FTX and Alameda. So there's a lot more contagion that's going to come out of FTX. And I heard of at least one exchange in Hong Kong that gated customer withdrawals 12 days ago. So I'm sure a lot of smaller exchanges are going to tip over. I imagine Coinbase would probably be okay. But I mean, my God, don't hold funds on Coinbase. Don't hold funds on any exchange at all right now. The whole point is self-custody. The killer app is self-custody. So if you're not doing self-custody, you're doing it wrong, in my opinion. But the point is with Coinbase, I think you have like a slightly different risk profile because on Coinbase, what I think is going to happen is one day the government is going to tell them, okay, send all customer funds to the government multisig. I think that's the end of Coinbase. I don't think it, oh, whoops, we were stealing customer funds to do risky trades. I don't think that's the business they're in. But I think the risk for them is regulatory, in my opinion. These contagions do take a while. Like I think because your point is, is this ball with FTX sort of started rolling when Luna popped. And then all of the other things that got taken out from there that eventually wiped out FTX and Alameda. And imagine, now I'm not trying to do, be a doom and gloomer, but I opened up Twitter before we started recording and there's more talk of concern about Tether. And your good buddy, uh, Peter Schiff, is going on a tweet thread right now about how Tether is about to crash. I don't know if he's right or not, but that kind of event would be extremely dramatic. I think we're already looking at a prolonged bear market and there's going to be a long reputation climb. Uh, but I think if something like Tether were to pop, we'd see dramatic government action. For sure. I mean, and the problem with Tether is that nobody knows because I don't think it's easy to audit Tether, but they've had eight years and they've never done a convincing audit. They do attestations, which are really different. So Tether is massive counterparty risk for anyone who's holding uh, Tether dollar tokens. They've managed to survive all sorts of crazy events and actually met their CTO, Paolo Ardino, at the Adopting Bitcoin conference. And he's a really interesting person to talk to. I mean, I didn't really have any preconceived notions, but he seems really interested and serious about technology. And I guess there are some, I mean, from a technological business perspective, maybe Tether has implemented their stablecoin issuance in a pretty robust way. Because while the economics and the custody risk and the morality and the legality of Tether are all like huge questions 
question marks. In terms of technology, I mean, their token works great on all of these blockchains and it never hiccups. So, you know, they did a good job there, at least, I guess, for whatever that's worth. Well, OK, so uh, not that we really talk about price much, but there you go. There's our thoughts on price, I suppose. And, you know, maybe let's just leave the trashing of SBF to other podcasts. But um, I-, I think there's just going to be a huge amount of news on this subject going forward. And there will probably be some really good analysis. And I know you, you'll keep your eye out for the best of the best. I mean, to be honest, I really want to talk about how SBF is a Benthamite utilitarianist or utilitarian. His whole effective altruism philosophy is based on a really messed up imagining of the human condition, in my opinion. Because I think for most people, we know that we can't understand other people very well and everyone has their own unique reality. And so we respect that by having moral rules, right? Which are shorthands for how we should behave. And we're not trying to, you know, be like the perfect moral agent, but we have moral rules. And so we don't do things like steal from people, which at which SBF did. You know, we don't do things like lie, which SBF did. So why did he do those things? I mean, one explanation is he's just a sociopath. You know, he doesn't care about anything. Okay. He's like, his, his brain is broken. Or you could say, well, you know, he's just super greedy. But I mean, he did give away a certain amount of money. Well, Benthamite utilitarianism, from what I've read, I'm not a philosopher, is this idea that the most moral good is like the average good of everybody. And so it's like the capacity for pain and pleasure of everyone you consider valuable. So maybe humans, maybe animals as well. And you have to sort of imagine how many people exist today, what would give them pleasure versus pain, and how many humans will exist in the future, and you know what would be best for them. And so it's like this massive, huge calculation that you could never know, and you'll definitely get wrong. But if you have the hubris to think that you can think like this and make successful deductions about what is good for everybody, then you get to really weird conclusions. Conclusions like, if I make FTX really successful, I can give billions and trillions of dollars to philanthropy. Therefore, the ends justify the means, and I can steal customer funds to bail out my other business. And that's clearly an excuse. But in this sort of Benthamite utilitarian greater good model, the ends justify the means. And I think that whenever anyone says the ends justify the means, GTFO, get out of there. You know, it's, it's a yeah, bad Yeah, it's movie sign. villain stuff. That's movie villain stuff right there. And, um, you know, I've read a few things that give me kind of pause because um, SBF talks about how this is a philosophy that he adopted from his parents because they also have the same, you know, a lot of these people who are worth billions. I think this is kind of how they justify to themselves being so rich because, you know, when you have billions and billions of dollars, you are taking resources. You are the squirrel with the most nuts and there's less squirrels in some way. I think people get a certain amount of guilt about it is what I'm trying to say. They And they kind of justify it to themselves by this philosophy. And I think Sam, was a bit neglected. You know, he talks about how his parents didn't really seem to treat him very well. So he grew up very rich in a family that kind of has this bent version of a philosophy and he, you know, he took it and ran with it. I think a lot of them subscribed to that. They all lived in that house together. They all kind of were a bit of a pack. They also were very young. You know, they're almost half my age. You know, they form their own little commune family unit, very intertwined in each other's lives. They have their own moral, you know, standards, which maybe that's fine, but it's clearly they just followed their own, their own beat, you know, their own drum to their own whatever saying is you know what i'm saying and you know actually this kind of leads us into our tokenomics thread from Corey, which is about the biggest scam in crypto which is andreessen horowitz and the connection is that a16z invested in ftx and they even published this puff piece about how when they were hearing his pitch he was on his laptop you know and of course he's really disheveled he's dirty his hair is a mess he doesn't he's not wearing shoes you know i mean he really looks like a you know either a homeless person or a autistic savant i mean he really 
plays that look. And he's on his laptop playing League of Legends while he's in this incredibly important business meeting. And I think this is also part of the, you know, his marketing, his mystique that he uh, was cultivating this image as sort of an obsessed founder. And I've heard this from venture capitalists. Like when they when they look for people to invest in, they're actually looking for pretty broken people, pretty, pretty obsessive, weird people. And I think Sam had figured out that there is a certain model of like a savant that really makes venture capitalists start to salivate. And he did that perfectly. So, you know, A16 has actually been behind many of the worst scams of this cycle. And one that I know you and I are think is very amusing is Helium. You mean the people-powered network? Yeah. The Helium blockchain that's going to bring peer-to-peer networking to all of us and uh, nodes get incentivized to participate in the whole thing. And yeah, I think I think it was, oh, it must have been months ago that we did a breakdown of why that just doesn't work and how it is just truly one of these great examples of, well, the way we'll trick the market is by pretending to have this great real-world use case, because that's the problem with all these blockchains, is what's the real-world use case? Well, we figured it out. We'll figure out a way to incentivize people based on data usage with tokens, and it is one of the most complex scams I've ever seen. It is, like, you go read through it, and there's layers of structure to how the whole incentive system works. Just be sure to scroll to the bottom of the thread, because the TLDR as to why venture capitalists like A16Z have supported so many crypto scams is that before crypto, venture capitalists had to invest in a company, support the company. They were very involved. You know, they helped these companies they invested in get connections. They advised them. It was not a costless venture. And often it took five to 10 years for them to get their money back. And so this was a risky, costly endeavor with 99 failures for every company that shot to the moon. And those are not great odds. But with crypto scams, suddenly they could invest in token pre-sales in unregistered securities with no laws governing them. And then they could dump those tokens on retail people who were just reading marketing and thought this thing was going to be the next Bitcoin. If you have access to these deals, you can print money very quickly. I mean, it's an incredible business. If you have no morals, this is the best business to be in. And A16Z has no morals. So that's the business they're in, is the TLDR. They've pumped all kinds of things like that BS decentralized hiring and backend uh, business platform. Which was a total scam. And they've had these rather popular podcasts that they can use as promotion platforms for some of this and, you know, get some early people going in there and generating a little price action. To me, it does read as a scam. Um, And it also, it kind of underscores an overall lens I've been taking on the tech market recently. And that is having kind of a couple of years ago now gone through the whole VC process through a couple of different companies in a rather rapid succession. It really opened my eyes to how the VC world worked because I was in the leadership team. So I was there for some of the discussions and it's it's kind of remarkable. It, and it got even worse since I was in there. It, there was just no real due diligence on the people running the company and the actual like money coming in. There was some there was some different there were some numbers that got looked at, but those were just standard numbers. And so before you even had the conversation with the investment firm, you knew what those numbers needed to be and you're in control of the source information. And I could see that just getting abused a lot potentially. But additionally, I think the thing that I really see here is easy money that was running for a decade made it more and more possible for VC firms to just throw money at companies and they didn't have to have a solid leadership team. They didn't have to have a solid market strategy or a solid revenue source. And then when you started doing this crypto angle, which was like, I think the peak of it, the peak of this last just crazy money run was where crypto really came in. You know, a firm could go on an exchange and just buy a whole bunch of tokens real easy and just skip all of it. Yeah. I mean, it's the shortest path to monetizing your investment 
investment. So they took it. I mean, the last thing I want to mention about A16Z, because I think that it can sound like we're kind of getting on our high horse here. They supported a company called WorldCoin. And WorldCoin's idea is that they'll do a some sort of costless blockchain. It's a, it's a Bitcoin competitor. And their trick was they can get a fair distribution because what we'll do is we'll just scan your eyes. And everyone's eyes, the iris, is unique. Maybe, theoretically, who knows. And we'll use this to basically scan everyone in the world's eyes. And that'll also be like a global ID. This is sinister central bank digital currency level stuff where your wallet is tied to your eye scan, which is your identity. I mean, pretty sinister. But to get iris scans for their test project, they went to the third world and lied to people about why they were scanning their eyes. And that's basically medical data. So they lied to people and stole a million people's medical data to fund this project. And sure, it's just a financial Ponzi scheme, but they also abused the trust of people in developing countries and stole the scans of their eyes and told them it was for something else. So this is really scammy stuff. It's really bad. Yeah. And the issue is, is retail has gotten mixed in with all of this too, right? It's one thing when it's just rich guys taking money from rich guys. But in this case, it's medical records being taken or medical information being taken without permission, without consent. And it's retail that gets involved in these tokens. And then not only do they often get pumped and dumped, which, you know, it's retail who's the exit liquidity every single time. But in some cases, they just lose all their funds because the entire thing collapses around them and they are the ones that get their bags emptied. And so like it matters even more than it used to, because, again, it's not just rich people taking money from rich people anymore. Yeah, poor people have more to lose. Well, as we transition out of this and also talking about FTX, I thought it was maybe worth mentioning that it appears Tom Brady, Larry David, and several other celebrities have class action lawsuits coming at them for promoting FTX. And my question to you, Dad, is do you think this could one day extend to, say, the YouTubers? If, say, the market got really nasty, somebody came after BitBoy, for example, for promoting one of these securities? 100%. And I think that the YouTubers and the podcasters, there's one in particular I I sometimes kind of mention it on Twitter, are exposed because they took money from FTX. So first of all, there's a financial scam or a Ponzi scheme, and that Ponzi scheme either paid you out distributions, like you invested and then you got some money back. The US government can claw that money back from you because if you receive money from a crime, it's not legally yours. It's actually the proceeds of a crime. And this is obviously a legal standard that is ripe for abuse. At the same time, it's not unreasonable. So it's not fair if I go out and I steal a bunch of money and then I pay Chris for consulting services. Chris is actually being paid by money that belongs to someone else, not me. And so if my crimes come out, the original victims can actually ask for Chris to send the money back these class action lawsuits against people who promoted FTX, that's sort of what's happening here. So I think that the crypto podcaster YouTuber space, you know, all y'all better keep those money funds you got pretty liquid. And you probably should lock the US dollar value of them because I think that they're coming for you and you're going to need to give those funds back. And if you've already spent them, tough luck. The law doesn't care. You're going to need to work for years to pay that money back. And bankruptcy does not discharge legal judgments against people who have received ill-gotten money. So there's no real hiding from that, especially because all of these people, they capitalized on their identity. Their name and face is out there. There's no hiding. The other thing that's got to be rough for some of them is uh, there's a possibility, like in the case of FTX, those ads were paid for with customer funds. That's a tough thing for those content creators to sit with. And I have to imagine some of them are going to have to decide to try to return those funds somehow. I don't know if it's possible, but that's a tricky thing. And, and, you know, the content creation space is still nascent in the Bitcoin slash crypto 
crypto community, and these mistakes are going to be made. This is a land minefield that Jupiter Broadcasting has had to walk for a decade. So it is a very tricky thing sometimes because there can be great offers and FTX had a pretty good reputation. So it's kind of an understandable mistake to make. But then you find out, well, your audience has now lost their funds. You are essentially advocating for custodial services. So they lost their keys. You may have been getting paid with customer funds, which some of those people were your audience. Like that's a pretty sickening feeling. One issue for anyone who's taken FTX money is that you may have been paid in crypto assets, but you were probably paid for nominal dollar values. And so those crypto assets, if you didn't spend them already, they're going down in value, but you're probably liable for the nominal dollar value just because I've never seen a legal settlement where someone was liable for the number of Bitcoin or the number of FTT tokens or anything. You're generally just liable for the dollar amounts at the time when the crime or the event took place. So it's going to be difficult for these people to pay funds back because they're probably already on the hook for more than they have. And also inflation is high for everybody. And, you know, running a high-end scammy podcast, yeah, you can take money from shady sponsors, but it's not that much money. It's expensive to do this stuff, especially full-time. So I just doubt that they have the funds. And if they do have the funds and they are smart and they're sitting in dollars, well, they're getting eroded by inflation. So it's a tough situation. And taking money from shady sources can often end this way, in my opinion. And it's particularly tricky if you're outside the States. I mean, we're looking at a 7% inflation CPI right now. I mean, I'm sure it's truly a little bit higher than that, but CPIs are on 7%. That stings. I don't like it. I don't like that at all, but it could be worse. And in Japan, it's potentially worse, potentially not, because inflation in Japan just hit a 40-year high. And while it's not a huge nominal rate, I think it rose 3.6% year on year in October, which seems pretty mild, right? It's under 4%. That said, 4% inflation is relatively high. 4% inflation means that prices double every 16 years or so. So why is it important that Japan is hitting record inflation, even though it seems nominally low? Well, I think the first thought is that Japan is coming off of near 0% inflation. So if you divide 3.6% by 0% or 0.1%, you get a massive increase. I mean, this is a thousand percent increase. And so that delta, that speed, and that size of that increase is huge. And that can be very disruptive to especially financial businesses. You know what struck me about it, not so much the number, Dad, was the trend that we're seeing both in the UK, in the States, in Japan, 40-year high. All all three of those countries have announced 40-year highs. Like The UK's rate seems really bad. Their official number is somewhere around 11% right now. Trueflation actually clocks them in at 19.32% inflation rate. And I have to say, Trueflation seems to have been really legit on the US side so far. If it is as accurate on the UK side, a 19% inflation rate is the real inflation rate. That's just striking. I mean, but all of these countries are saying 40-year high. It's kind of, they're all saying it in unison right now. How interesting. So Trueflation is like a chain link Oracle. So they're providing inflation data to Oracle projects on blockchains. And they kind of, they go through on one of their pages and describe some of their sources. I went through it. I mean, it looks like they're getting pricing information from various vendors and that's how they're tracking the inflation rate. I've been watching it for about six months on the US side or so, and it so far has tracked pretty accurately. So why is it important that Japan inflation is ticking up too? I think it's important to the narrative that our legacy euro dollar slash petrodollar system can continue unchanged because whenever you say, listen, debt to GDP is out of control, the counter to that statement is, well, look at Japan. Their debt to GDP is around 250% and they're fine. And the reason that Japan has been able to maintain that incredible debt load is because there are some pretty interesting financial flows that basically mean you don't get 
runs on the Japanese yen the same way as happens in developing nations. Japan has a lot of foreign exchange reserves. And so in a relatively low inflation period, they were able to maintain a very large debt burden. However, as energy markets have gone into crisis over the past year and various other economic events have increased volatility in financial markets, what we've seen is that Japan's currency has lost almost 40% of its value. I mean, that's huge. That's a, that's a currency devaluation. And now that devaluation is working its way into their inflation numbers. And the Bank of Japan is still keeping their official core interest rates that they set in their government debt market near zero, which means that it's very likely that if the BOJ doesn't raise interest rates, inflation will continue to rise in Japan. And it is likely to rise anyway, simply because of the external cost of energy and other macroeconomic factors. And that means that even these relatively small rises in the inflation rate could be a red flag that Japan is going to have a financial crisis. And that speaks to potentially global depression because the U.S. is in recession, Europe is in recession. And now if Japan has a financial crisis, that's another huge disruption to a fragile international financial and monetary system. So I think it's really something to watch. And in my opinion, it discredits the narrative that it's possible for a government to have massive debt to GDP for an extended period of time. Sure, in the short term, whatever that means, one year, 10 years, 20 years, that's all short term relatively from certain viewpoints. It's possible to cheat a little and to take on more leverage. But this is a form of leverage, you know, high government debt to GDP. And we're seeing leverage being shaken out of the financial markets. And so why not Japan? I think it's entirely plausible that this results in a serious problem for Japanese financial markets and perhaps their real economy too. So they're saying 3% by March. So are we thinking decades for this to play out or are we thinking a matter of years? I don't know. I mean, my gut feeling would be that things will probably play out faster than decades simply because at higher levels of debt, there's more inherent leverage in financial markets and leverage seems to blow up quickly. But that's just a guess. One frustrating aspect to the problems of legacy markets is that the rules can change at any time. And so sometimes these currency debt issues, sometimes there are insolvencies that are papered over by the government because they simply change the rules about who's allowed to sell and who can't. And sometimes investors holding bad assets who would be happy or not happy, but they'd be willing to sell them for pennies on the dollar are forced to eat the entire loss because of basically a political intervention. So I think it's pretty hard to call how our current financial troubles are going to play out. At the same time, you know, there are just more red flags every day from where I'm sitting. Not to go super deep into the macro, but just on a high level, what could be done to reverse this trend? I mean, we see the UK at nearing 11% inflation, Germany 10% inflation. Truflation says it's going dramatically in the wrong direction. We see it ticking up now in Japan. It can't be just increase the rates and reduce demand and fix it everywhere. There, what is the solution? Is it China has to be back online 100% manufacturing? Is it is it a dramatic change in fiscal policy? I would say yes to all of those. So let's just have a thought experiment where we get to dictate policy for Japan or the UK. Let's say Japan. I think that the first thing you do is you gate capital markets. You make it so that money can't leave the country. And then you impose 4 to 5% inflation on everybody. You try to manage it basically by reducing the property rights, the freedom of capital flows. This might hurt ordinary people, but if you can have policy that maintains full employment, you essentially need wealthy pools of capital to take it on the chin for the society to maintain the status quo. We're assuming that our goal is to maintain the status quo without a sort of change in political consensus, because that's very messy, can take a long time, and sometimes you accidentally get fascist governments in the process. <laughs> right. 
And then I think the answer is you need like very fast, probably state-led intervention into supply chain bottlenecks. So if there's an energy problem, you need to green light five new nuclear power plants and break ground right away, which is not possible without, you know, basically government emergency orders that steamroll people's property rights and the right to communities to have a debate about, do they want a nuclear power plant there? You kind of have to go full national emergency. And I think that's why it's unlikely that there's going to be decisive action to deal with these multiple economic, energy, and financial problems. Because, you know, honestly, authoritarian countries like China are best suited to perform these brutal actions, which can kind of get you out of this hole you're in quickly. But countries like that don't care because they don't care about regular people suffering because regular people have no political representation. Whereas when we have a democracy where, you know, perhaps there's a need for political consensus, it's very rare to have the social cohesion for, you know, basically a population to say to their leaders, hey, we are willing to short term take it on the chin if, you know, you can implement policy that will lead us to another round of economic growth in five to six years or 10 years or something. No one would take that deal because any other political party will be like, hey, now we'll just do some UBI. Everything will be great. You know, no one wants to have that real conversation because it's unsexy and it's scary. Maybe I sound like a pessimist, but it's my opinion that this sort of crisis that appears to be the end of 40 to 50 years of relatively short-term policy and investment could take potentially decades to sort out. So we might just be living with a lot of volatility and uncertainty for potentially the rest of our lives. That's just one view. Because I mean, I think these are serious economic and social problems we're dealing with today. And that's why Bitcoin has appeared and is an important technology. Because the way that humans solve problems is we try every bad solution before we find the good one, right? (laughs) Yeah. I think we're going to see, you know, disastrous attempts to deal with inflation that causes more inflation, like sending out stimulus checks in France to deal with the inflation. We did that in the US too. It created more inflation. I think we're going to see a lot of that before we see decisive productive action. And that decisive productive action might be very costly. And as citizens of a country, we might be asked to pay for it so that the political class doesn't have to ask their donors to pay for it. I don't think that things are going to work out in a very fair and equitable way. Why would they? That's not the world we've been living in. So why should it change in the midst of a crisis. And I think Bitcoin is kind of a response to that, because if we opt into Bitcoin, we know that there's a fixed monetary policy, there's guaranteed property rights, no one can seize our funds if we hold them ourselves. And so this is a form of insurance against our sort of political and economic backdrop, in my opinion. That's deep. And you know what else it means is you started a podcast at just the right time. Well, thanks for that. Should we enjoy a little tokenomic schadenfreude to uh, lighten the mood, perhaps? (laughs) Yeah, let's. Yeah, that's a great idea. Well, since we already talked about FTX promoters getting sued and Corey and the A16Z scam, why don't we just laugh about the fact that Crypto.com, one of the more popular domain names in the scam crypto industry, doesn't seem to know how to use their Ethereum wallet. This is so embarrassing, right? Because they're supposed to be the people that are taking care of your funds. And this is some beginner stuff. I mean, no shame to anybody who's done this. We've made mistakes. But also, that's why you send a test amount first. Just saying. Crypto.com was going to move 320,000 Ethereum. I don't know what the price is because who cares? That's a lot of money to a cold wallet. And instead they sent it to another exchange by accident. They pasted in the wrong code. They had no process to verify it. Like, oh my God. And then the real kicker, they had a relationship with this counterparty. So they, you know, they call them up and they're like, hey, listen, uh, we accidentally sent you a huge amount of money. Can you uh, give that back to us? And the other other side says, yeah, sure. No problem. But they only send 285,000 back. Oh, I hadn't caught that part. My understanding was just because I was following the tweet thread is they sent everything back. Yeah, I think they took a a fee of 35,000 Ethereum. (laughs) 
<laughs> that's so great. <laughs> How embarrassing. That's like more money than the average person will ever see in their life. And they just, they're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll just take this as a tax. <laughs> Stupid tax. Maybe it was the gas fees. You never know. TLDR, if the gating of Gemini Urn, if the failure of FDX has not woken you up, by God, get your coins off exchange. You need to learn how to self-custody. Just do it. Listen to the last episode. We talk about using Sparrow Wallet. Keeping in theme with kind of laughing at silly altcoins, it turns out Kim.com is a Bitcoin casher and apparently tweeted out a video (laughs) that the prime minister uh, of, what was it? Uh, (laughs) I've actually forgot the location, but... uh, but they're going, they're going all Bitcoin cash. And uh, I'm sorry, not, I don't mean to laugh. I just can't even take it seriously. St. Kitts and Nevis is a, it's an island in the, like near the Bahamas. And it's a tax haven. So you can buy citizenship oh, there. Okay, that's even better. All right. I don't know why I know this, but you can buy citizenship there. And it's very expensive. But you can, you know, if you have millions or billions of ill-gotten dollars, it's cheap. You go there, you pay a bunch of money, you buy citizenship, and then you can form very anonymous companies there. And the deal is with St. Kitts and Nevis is that you form some sort of shady holding com- company there that pays a bunch of fees every year, like potentially tens of thousands of dollars of fees to the government there every year. And then if other jurisdictions have questions about who owns this company or what's going on, St. Kitts and Nevis is like, beat it. We don't answer questions. Like that's their deal. And Roger Ver, the Bitcoin Cash founder, lives in St. Kitts and Nevis. And he gave up his U.S. citizenship basically so he didn't have to pay U.S. taxes on his crypto gains. But then what happened is he was coming to a conference a while ago, maybe it was like in 2018, and he was denied entry to the USA because he'd given up his citizenship. You know, he wanted it both ways. He wanted to not pay U.S. taxes on his massive kind of scammy BCH gains. And then he also wanted to, you know, come to the US, go to conferences, live a normal life. And the Customs and Border Protection, maybe in conference with the Treasury Department, was like, nah, bro, you gave up your US citizenship. And we're worried you might stay in the US past your visa. And I mean, it's just funny because normally visas are hard for poor people, not for rich people. But Roger Ver got it hard. So you knew way more about that than I ever did. That's interesting. Just noting that down. <laughs> But maybe you could introduce Kim.com. I just, it's so funny that he's a Bitcoin casher because I remember him because he used to run Mega, which was that sort of encrypted file sharing. But then he also was famous because he was living in New Zealand or something and the, the police raided his home with an army and he took a lot of pictures. He was also, I think, a big gun nut. I mean, he's, he's quite a character, right? He's a bit of a like a stir the pot kind of character, too. Like he comes in and drops bombs. He claims to get like intel from Russia and inside political parties. I don't know what to make of this guy. And so the fact that he's also outputting this just adds such a bit of skepticism from my side. I think it's one of the reasons why I just sort of immediately dismissed it. Because Kim.com is kind of a bodacious character, and he's kind of made his fame after that raid on building that ultra-secure file services network, which is basically dead now. I can't imagine anyone takes him very seriously. But yet, you know, he tweeted this out, and CryptoSlate.com wrote up about it. I mean, I'm not surprised that if Roger Ver lives in Kitson Nevis, he could probably get some sort of law passed about Bitcoin Cash because St. Kitts and Nevis is a a corporation disguised as a company. And if you give them money, they'll do things for you. So it's pretty consistent with their MO. 
Now, we had this story a few weeks ago about the death of decentralized email. And I thought it was really interesting because it's an article by Jameson Law. But the moral applies to Bitcoin, I think, because email was developed in an era of the trusted internet, as in in 1977, when the first SMTP protocols were being designed, there were physical maps of the internet. You could actually see who all the servers or the addresses on ARPANET were. And obviously, the internet has changed a lot. And it kind of seems like the SMTP protocol was not really good enough for a decentralized internet. And now we get centralized email as a result. You you know, what struck me reading through this is the history of kind of the community itself deciding to tighten things down. I'm an old man. And one of my very first jobs was they gave me as a sysadmin, they gave me control of the mail server and they wanted me to kind of set up some of these new, more standard practices. And um, I remember the first thing I had to do was disable open relay, which there was a big philosophical debate about that at the time. But initially, any SMTP server could just be used as a relay for your mail. And so that meant as a as an end user, I could just any mail server I knew of, I could just use to send off my mail. Then we begun doing DNS verification and spam assassin was really big spam assassin and clam AV. And we would combine those two technologies together to prevent email hitting the end users that was bogus. And this, <laughs> this article, <laughs> this article actually talks about uh, the very first spam ever sent. <laughs> uh, and the guy claims he made a ton of sales. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I guess initial spam was successful and the industry was was <laughs> just going to keep it up ever since. Uh, then we moved into the era really of ISPs, right? ISPs locking things down, preventing users from running mail servers, blocking traffic on port 25. And that, I believe, combined with all of the other efforts, like you said, to make everything just verifiable, trustworthy, led to centralization. And now you have something like 90% of the world's email users are on centralized solutions. You know, it's really funny that you mentioned that because actually I may have committed spam back in the day. So I apologize (laughs) for my sins because I was working for a job and they asked me to send out some promotional emails. And this company was a real fly by night startup and they didn't have like the right infrastructure and I didn't know what I was doing. And so I actually had this email address from like the past and I I kind of figured out how to scan or just I figured out that their server was not locked down and Mm -hmm. I bounced a whole bunch of email (laughs) off of their server. And I was like, oh, this is great. It works. And I was like doing this for a while until I literally got a phone call from the institution and they were like, what the hell are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, whoa, yeah, yeah. oh my God. Like, <laughs> okay, sorry, I didn't know. You know? <laughs> When trying to like map this to crypto, I look at this and the one thing that strikes me and the article touches on this too is the first legislation to deal with spam, the Can Spam Act, was signed by George W. Bush in 2003, which was 32 years after email's invention. So it took 32 years before spam law. And it didn't really do much either because, of course, a lot of spam can just take place outside the United States and, you know, there's all kinds of little loopholes. But that's interesting. You know, the, the regulation played a role, absolutely, in the centralization of email. Uh, but but I think the market dynamics played a bigger role. There was no regulation that convinced the company I worked for to turn off our open relay and to start doing spam assassin and then start doing DNS verification. Those are just things we were doing to try to keep the noise down because our end users were getting inundated. We chose to do it. I feel like the moral here is that email was architected before the adversarial environment of the open internet was known. And as a result, the the fixes that you applied to try to make it work in a more adversarial 
world were these patches, these afterthoughts almost. Like Spam Assassin had thousands of arbitrary rules that tried to prevent spam. And so it was really like the wrong protocol for a decentralized messaging service for the internet of today. And it wasn't architected with the principles of decentralization in mind. And as a result, the kind of obvious solution was to create a more permissioned centralized email service or email ecosystem. And Lop talks about that because when he was working for an email-based company, while he was working there, they started to have these employees who were non-technical, but who maintained communication channels with all the other email companies. And they would like contact them and be like, hey, listen, we're having trouble routing email to you. We need to like make sure that our protocols are matching. And email just didn't have the right tech to remain decentralized. And so it was fixed with centralization. And I think this is a warning for Bitcoin, because if development is hashtag reckless and makes trade-offs for convenience and throughput that aren't well tested and aren't well thought through, we could end up changing the balance of Bitcoin away from further decentralization and towards centralization. So this is an important story for Bitcoiners. And I, I suggest reading the whole thing. It's really interesting. Well, if you didn't know, this here episode is brought to you by the self-hosted show. That's what we do over at Jupiter Broadcasting. Lots of great shows over there. A new episode just came out and we discussed trying to build a NAS from a workstation, talk about my battles with Z-Wave versus Zigbee, and trying to find an Evernote replacement because if you haven't heard, Evernote just got purchased. So selfhosted.show for that. You can check it out on the web or in your favorite podcast app. And you might be able to use Joplin as an Evernote replacement. Do you guys talk about that? We have. You know, I'm thinking about giving that another go because that's been one of the recommendations, the number one recommendations that's come in since the show went out. We've looked at it. The one thing I can't remember if Joplin supports is optical character recognition of PDFs and photos. That's such a big one for us because we throw manuals in Evernote and then we search the contents of the of the PDFs later. I'm going to give you a no way on that. Joplin is way more basic and it pairs well with Nextcloud. Perhaps maybe Nextcloud is a way to go. I, I could see that as well. I, I, there's other things pushing me towards setting up another Nextcloud instance. It's just it would be my third Nextcloud instance. Jeez, that's a lot of Nextcloud. It's a lot. <laughs> As I've been hinting, I've been at the Adopting Bitcoin conference in El Salvador for the past few days. And this is a fairly lightning-focused Bitcoin conference. It's a very technical conference. There are a lot of developers here. Peter Todd was here, Adam Gibson, Waxwing, who created Join Market, many developers. And there were a lot of really nuanced and interesting conversations about Bitcoin scaling, about privacy. And we're going to cover it in an episode next week as a recap. The other issue is that some of the hand were filmed and the video is not yet available. So I think we might want to wait until the video is available and then we can kind of introduce some of the panels and maybe do summaries for our listeners. Brilliant. Now, we've been talking for a few weeks about Darth Coin's Lightning Wallet Guide. This is interesting because it ties into news about Moon Wallet. But what Darth Coin's guide does is it breaks down Lightning Wallets by their trade-offs. And so generally the trade-off is custodial wallets have a lot of convenience and functionality built in there. But And then self-custodied wallets generally have more features, more control, more security, but less convenience. But Darth Coin actually goes a little bit deeper. He breaks it into beginner custodial wallets 
wallets and intermediate custodial wallets, and then sort of advanced lightning wallets, and then very advanced node management lightning wallets. It's an interesting distinction. What do you think about that, Chris? You know, I was having a conversation in the Bitcoin matrix chat room earlier today with somebody who's kind of struggling with some of these terms and trying to figure out if they need a lightning wallet to begin with and what the downsides are to the ones that do support lightning and how secure they are. And this functionalities chart that's in DarthCoin's guide here is like, I just linked it to that person as we're talking because it's like exactly what they need is or what are my trade-offs and using a common language with this, with just this whole guide does is I think key because the individual in this case was aggregating several guides and in the guides, they're using custodial and non-custodial in opposite ways. And it's very confusing for new users. They can get tripped up on so many of these things. I spent the last week looking at a couple of different wallet options. I don't really want to talk about them yet because I don't think they're safe and secure and ready for end user deployment. But there's a few in development that I've been watching that I'm really excited about. As I just did that couple of day deep dive, I discovered there's so many options out there. And then depending on what platform you're on, (laughs) it's even worse. Yeah, it's really complicated and there are no easy answers. I think that a lot of people thought that Bitcoin would be a mature project and just ready to go after 10 years. And I think we're discovering that re-architecting the technological basis of the world's financial and economic system is a pretty big lift. And so it's still early days. And the negative on that is that it's very nuanced and there's no silver bullet perfect solutions for Lightning and also main chain Bitcoin. On the flip side, it's still early. So it's kind of a great time to get involved. You can still be on that early adopter wave. And I think there are a lot of benefits to that. The trend is your friend as well, right? These apps are getting better. They're seeing development. There is a good range of options for the different type of skill level of user. It's just they're just not fully mature yet. What I would recommend is that if you have questions about Lightning wallets, consider sending a specific question into the show about your use case. We can make a recommendation and we can kind of point you to the section of articles like this where you might want to read on the details and the features. The TLDR is that there are a lot of trade-offs with custodial wallets, but things like Moon and Wallet of Satoshi, many people think are a good beginner wallet. That said, there are trade-offs. And that kind of leads into our next bit of education, which is a question on Twitter from Peter Todd and another user, is that is Moon in fact a lightning wallet? Because for certain transactions, the transactions were taking relatively long time to clear. And there was this 47 cent fee associated with all of these transactions. And doing some analysis, a Twitter user concluded that this is actually an on-chain transaction fee when you are making transactions in Moon that are over 50,000 Satoshis. Mm, Well, that must not be lightning then. Well, Moon says that they're actually doing a submarine swap. So they're sending an on-chain payment that then corresponds to a lightning payment. And I think that there's a reason to do this, which might relate to balancing liquidity. At the same time, because Moon obfuscates what's happening below the wallet, in a sense, custodial wallets are actually just a SQL database with your account balance, and it connects to a lower level lightning node that is then actually doing lightning transactions. And it turns out that actually Moon connects to both lightning nodes and Bitcoin nodes. Well, I mean, obviously a lightning node lives on top of a Bitcoin node. And when you send transactions, it will sometimes use an on-chain transaction, what's called a submarine swap, which is a way to swap on-chain Bitcoin for lightning Bitcoin or vice versa. And sometimes it'll just send a lightning payment. Is this a problem? I don't know. Moon, I think, tends to gouge on fees sometimes. And the interesting thing is sometimes sending from fully self-custodied lightning wallet to lightning wallet, node to node, is faster than moon wallets sending to moon wallets, which is just blows my mind. So the TLDR is even with fully custodial wallets, you're not necessarily going 
going to get the best experience, but it will be easier to just use it. So if that's your goal, you know, that is an option. Yeah. And that's, I think, Moon's argument. It's an implementation detail that they feel like users don't care about. And I'll tell you the use case that I found Moon was kind of handy for is you have somebody who's new to Bitcoin and they are interested in buying sats non-KYC. And so you go to RoboSats. Well, RoboSats is all lightning, but you want to take those lightning sats and you want to store them in your cold wallet, right? So you have to get them out of the lightning network and into your cold wallet. And, you know, I could sit here and try to explain that to them, or I can just tell them on RoboSats, send it to a moon wallet and then from moon, send it to your cold wallet or wherever, you know, your, your temporary wallet before you coin join, whatever you do. You're actually taking advantage potentially of a arbitrage opportunity where you're having them pay to send lightning Bitcoin to on-chain Bitcoin. And it's simple. It's so easy for anyone could do it. Anybody can, anybody that can get the Tor browser and can install the Moon app can do all of this. And to Moon's credit as well, I think they have one of the best UIs on a mobile app for just seeing the state of like, where are your coins? Are you custodying them? What, how do you get to your recovery password? How do you restore? Have you done all the steps you can to make this secure? And they have some extra steps you can take. And they do it in a very visually understandable way that even if you're not familiar with the terms and concepts of self-custody and, and seed phrases and all of that, they manage it for you in a really visual, easy to approach way. Not necessarily recommending it as a day-to-day wallet, but I can kind of see the place for it in the whole Bitcoin ecosystem. I think longtime Bitcoiners, we look at it and go, well, that's not really lightning they're doing. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes they're just doing some of those back-end implementation details. That's how I see it. They're just taking care of that for the user. And for technical users that understand that stuff, I don't think Moon's for them. And I think the idea of slightly obfuscating what's going on behind the scenes to create a product that works leads nicely into the zero conf debate, which I've linked to on Twitter. John Carvalho is a Bitcoin wallet developer who has a wallet that uses unconfirmed transactions as a way to send money quickly. I think that there is a knee-jerk reaction that unconfirmed transactions aren't Bitcoin. But as John points out, not many users use the Bitcoin replace by fee function. And so some unconfirmed transactions really are not very risky because they're incredibly likely to be mined this or the next block. And they're useful and they're actually kind of a scaling technology in a sense because they're not in the blockchain yet, but we're using them. Peter Todd disagrees and he points out that when people are using unconfirmed transactions, it actually creates an incentive for attackers to attack the network to steal unconfirmed transactions, as well as the fact that because unconfirmed transactions are risky, if you're using them, you need to kind of monitor the whole network to see what the state of everyone's mempool is in case someone's trying to double spend that transaction. And this monitoring of zero conf is actually another attack on the network from a certain point of view. So, you know, both sides have some reasonable points there. It's just interesting that it's more complicated than zero conf bad, RBF good. Yeah, that's fair. I think, you know, just to articulate what I see as the use case for it would be user experience, speed of transaction, you know, because when I did, uh, what was it called? There's that, uh, that website that lets you basically trade sats for gift cards. We used it on the road trip to buy a few things for Brent, uh, like gas and some steaks. And we did a couple of transactions using Lightning. That was wonderful. It was instantaneous, right? Then we did a transaction on chain and that took a half hour and that felt really long. You know, that felt like, oh, geez, is it going to go through? You start to wonder, did it work? Are they going to send me an email? Like the user experience is really poor. And when you're dealing with $15, $20, maybe just confirming that the transaction in the mempool is there is enough for some of these companies. You know, these these app-based companies that are selling these kinds of services, like maybe they could eat that 
dollars if there was an attack. Although I hadn't really given consideration to if we saw a large increase in volume of those types of transactions, it does incentivize more attacks. So that's a pretty decent argument. This week's Bitcoin Optech is really interesting. The first thing I noticed was that there are a lot of really interesting, uh, I said interesting 10 times, there are a lot of great <laughs> software updates. So on the ZeroConf debate, Spectre 1.7 has actually added support for replace by fee. And the Trezor suite is now finally, finally adding coin control features. So, you know, five years late, Trezor, they're finally adding coin control to their wallet. Oh, just as an aside, I've decided to do some testing. I ordered a Trezor just to experience it because I know a lot of people in the audience are using them. So I'm going to get a Trezor. I'm, I've never tried the Trezor suite before, and I'm going to throw some sats on there. The thing that pushed me over was they've recently announced, and I don't know how this would work. I don't know if it's going to be available in the States, but DCAing with HODL HODL. Oh, wow. How on earth would that work? I don't know. I think they use an intermediary. I'm not sure. And then they put the sats directly on your treasure. So HODL HODL is a sort of centralized, decentralized exchange. There's a centralized website, but HODL HODL doesn't custody funds between trades. It just acts as a kind of emergency multi-sig signer in case the trade goes bad and you need someone to arbitrate. They also touch on Collider, which hasn't gotten very much attention, but is also, at least currently, a non-KYC, all Lightning-based exchange. And uh, the thing that's interesting in their implementation is the wallet you use for the exchange is is your wallet. So when you buy sats, it just goes directly to your lightning wallet. It doesn't stay on a balance on their exchange. So can you use it to buy? Yeah. So are you sending them dollars to a bank account? How does that work? It's all lightning. So I, I don't know exactly how you would get the funds on there. That's a great question. But they, uh, you even log in with lightning. So your whole identity is lightning based. The whole back end is lightning based. And there now are projects like LN proxy. So maybe you could proxy the identity of your lightning node to log in privately. And one thing you might like to uh, poke around around at is they have a collider synthetic stable coin that uh, I guess is is based on, on BTC. You know, the same kind of synthetic stable coins we've talked about before. They've kind of created their own for this exchange. So maybe you buy those stable coins somehow. I'll look into it maybe. I've thought about it. Or maybe they're just temporary trading instruments. Yeah, I mean, if they... Because Lightning is very fast, so that speed is probably useful for certain types of trading, but then Lightning is Bitcoin, so you need other things to trade. So it's inter it would be mm -hmm. interesting to see how they add those other things to buy and sell on there. And they say no KYC for now, but as they grow, they think they'll have to add KYC, which is uh, know your customer, I should say. Yeah, that's generally the pattern. So if they're successful, they'll get big enough that they'll either go to jail, get shut down or add KYC. And I think maybe it's OK to, to call that out up front. So it's kind of letting you know, don't leave a balance if you're not willing to KYC to get those funds. Bligzit added Taproot, the Bligzit, the Bligzit wallet, which that's kind of interesting. And of course, Sparrow 1.7.0 with replace by fee enabled. One of the big articles in this week's Optech is that Salvatore Ingala has been posting to the mailing list about a new type of covenant that would allow using Merkle trees to create smart contracts that carry state from one on-chain transaction to another. There's an example. Two users could wager on a game of chess where the contract could hold the rules of the game and the state could hold the positions of all the pieces on the board with it being possible to update that state by each on-chain transaction. Of course, a well-designed contract 
contract would allow the game to be played off-chain with only the settlement transaction at the end of the game being put on-chain. That's really interesting, and it's funny because it kind of ties in with something that Barack told me. So we've mentioned Barack, the Lightning Slayer, also the creator of BitMatrix, a automated market maker on Liquid. BitMatrix is feature equivalent with Uniswap V2 on Ethereum. That was kind of the inspiration for Barack, and he was basically saying that with Covenants, he can create automated market makers on Bitcoin if there were Covenants. At the same time, he said he wouldn't do that because he views on-chain resources as so scarce that adding smart contracts on the base chain just seems like a very short-term utility to Barack. So it's interesting that there's this proposal to use on-chain taproot addresses to enable this type of smart contracting. At the same time, you know, not everyone is a polymath like Barack, so it's possible to not think about the economic consideration of fees when building a technology like this. All right. Well, we've reached that point in the show. It is time for feedback. We love getting your feedback. Of course, you can email the show at bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com or on Twitter at bitcoindadpod or join the matrix. It details at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash matrix. And we've got some self-hosted budget app suggestions from John, a little crossover. Yeah, I got an email from John because I mentioned using Firefly to promote self-budgeting in the bear market. I don't know. Have you seen any of these apps before, Chris? I don't know if I have seen any one of these particular, but Cozy looks really interesting. It's supposedly a self-hosted finance app that can tie in and pull in different information from the API, sort of like a Mint uh, or a QuickBooks kind of online thing, but instead you self-host it. That sounds fascinating. I remember when Mint was this budgeting tool and everyone was like, oh, this is such a great idea. I just sign in and it pulls data from my bank account. Yeah, Mint was selling all of your freaking financial data. I mean, it was a nightmare. It's so crazy. It was the beginning of that whole trend. Yeah. And there's a couple other on here like actualbudget.com you could go check that one out uh these are really cool cozy banks is the one cozy.io that seems really cool to me so links in the show notes which brings us to boost remember you can always get in touch and support the show using a podcasting 2.0 apps link in the notes and our first boost is from at Marcel with 2121 Sat. Thanks for the show. When verifying software, aren't you still trusting that the signature on the website is correct? I'm not saying not to bother, but you know. Also, it's your show and you can read or not read any boosts you want. Personally, I would vote that you don't entertain <laughs> the Molly New boosts. It's not what the show is about. And I totally agree. You know, I think that maybe I got sucked into that debate. So thanks for the tip, Marcel. <laughs> Molly New fan did boost in again, and I'm I'm sorry, I'm not not going to read it. I kind of warned you last time, so I mean, I just like the stats either way. But yeah, I appreciate it. You know what, Marcel? To your question, there there is a pretty big difference between compromising the build of a piece of software and compromising the entire web stack to modify the signature that's on the website. So there is that, right? And there's also the ability to do change tracking on those websites to see if those things change. Uh, and then in the case of some free software projects, sometimes those keys are you know distributed throughout the different Linux repositories and things like that as well. TrueGrits came in with some enterprise sets, 1701. He was listening to Can't Stop Breaking BTCD. He said, you know what? I really enjoyed the energy section this episode. Oh, okay. That's that's positive feedback to hear. We don't normally hear that. <laughs> we got the feedback to do less energy. So thanks for that, TrueGrits. And Bitcoin Lizard boost in with a big boost, 10,000 sats. I look forward to the show every week. Oh, thank you so much. That's so nice to say. You are in my rotation of must-listen-to weekly shows. The format is great. Ton of great info in a very short time. One thing I'd like to clear up, and actually this is big news because we've mentioned it a few times, including guests. Mm -hmm. yes. Bitcoin lizard is a male leopard gecko with a diet primarily consisting of crickets and satoshis. Very healthy. 
We've always said Bitcoin lizard, don't ask what kind of lizard, but actually we should have because he is a leopard gecko. And uh, also uh, has a channel open to my note, which I appreciate. XRP, what? Boosted in with a thousand sats. I'd never really heard of XRP before your latest episode. Oops, that's what we get, Dad. Sorry. Uh, he says, uh, please, I'd love to have you do an explainer on XRP, comparing and contrasting with BTC in an upcoming episode. You know, that's actually a great suggestion. XRP and Ripple is a really big story, and it's kind of a history of one of the biggest scams in Bitcoin. So I'm going to write that down and we'll do a full episode. The TLDR is sometimes the worst scams stay around forever for weird reasons. And that's kind of the XRP story. Yeah, we may have a lot more to say on XRP in the near future. So, okay. All right. Right, XRP, what? Stay tuned and get your questions ready. Patar boosted in with 7,777 sats. He says, epic takedown of the clown shoe SBF. Let's only hope he rots behind bars for a good long while. Ooh. Going for Ooh. blood there, Patar. I wonder if he lost some uh, sats. Patar is an OG. I doubt he had any balances yeah. on exchange, but we I all... should never suggest such a thing. You're right. Well, we all mess up sometimes, so hopefully everyone's okay there. Yeah, I mean, let's, you know, let's hope for justice. At the same time, it's often denied, especially in these white-collar financial crime-type situations. Well, and the money he was spending on politicians, and it was on the left and the right, significantly more on the left, but both sides, you gotta figure that's gonna buy him some leniency. Honestly, I think it's actually gonna be the opposite, because, like you pointed out with Vox, Vox had been kind of cozy and positive with SBF, and and then when it came out that he was a scammer, they started publishing DMs and kind of washing their hands. So I imagine that SBF is actually a perfect scapegoat because he established FTX in a offshore jurisdiction. He tricked a lot of politicians, made them feel stupid for trusting him. I think they're going to be angry. And so, you know, they might go for his blood, which could be satisfying. At the same time, it doesn't solve the fundamental issues of trust and custody that legacy businesses like FTX always have. Yeah, yeah I could see that, you know, because it's been so public and so well documented they'll want to make an example and they'll want to prove that they haven't been bought oh that doesn't doesn't affect my ability to govern yeah i could see that <laughs> what a show we're about it's just beginning and like you said earlier in the show the contagion has only just begun as well it's only just begun <laughs> this has been the bitcoin dad pod recorded on friday november 18th 2022 i've been your bitcoin dad and i'm here as always with me chris Thanks for joining us, everybody. 